0: welcome to a special edition of the live to walk again podcast today we are so excited i can't even really explain how excited i am for our guest today uh willie frank the third called me and was like jeremy i want to have one of my dad's really good friends dick Trudell, on the podcast because he his story needs to be heard so dick welcome to the show um I'm so excited to have you here. I know uh, Willie's gonna Willie might pop in pop in on us here as well. But um, you know, welcome to the show. How are you doing?
1: Doing well, Jeremy. Thanks, and uh, good to see you again.
0: Good to see you yeah. too. And, and you know, Willie ex- described you as uh, being in the shit with his dad uh-huh. back through all the all the years, all the all the fights, um, you know, for fishing mm-hmm. rights and and all these things and. Um, yeah, I've read kind of your story, your biography, and and I mean you're just an amazing like you're. Willie said you're honestly the in, most interesting man in the world, and uh, I can I can definitely uh, from from reading some of, some uh, stuff about you I can vouch for that. So um, you know let's let's get into it. I want to you know I know you're you're an activist for Indian rights for a lot of other things, but you kind of how how did your journey start? in into getting into activism and you know where where'd you grow up things like that like let's start there
1: well I I grew up in the Midwest and in uh, Nebraska and I as a very young child uh, starting at age five really I was uh went to boarding schools that were for Indian children and there's been a lot of uh on the news regarding uh, the issues in Canada the residential schools and everything and uh But when people hear boarding schools for Native kids, they always think of Carlisle in terms of Jim Thorpe. And that was the first boarding school that was established in the late 1880s. But anyway, so I went uh, through that process as well up until I was a sophomore in high school. And so at a very early age, you you kind of had to survive uh, on your own almost. I mean, because there was no family environment other than during the summers when I would return home. So, you know, jumping to the, uh, to the current uh, situation in terms of the journey I've been on and have been a part of, have been very fortunate, uh, I sometimes ask myself or think how I ended up doing the things that I was a part of and the people that I dealt with, and I kind of come back to uh, when I was a kid, I enjoyed sports. And so in some respects, sports was a bridge for me, because uh, if you're on a playing field or on a a court or what have you, you you establish different relationships because of of your ability, you know, how you perform, what have you, and so in some respects that had a real impact on me, and I've always said that uh, sports was my bridge, you know, to the larger society, not having an agenda, but just being put in a situation where you could interact with uh, you know with different people, and uh, as I grew older and you know went on and played uh, you know college basketball and baseball and and uh, was uh, fortunate enough to be looked at or scouted uh, by the Braves and the White Sox when I was just a teenager. And then uh, going to college, uh, you know, playing uh, uh, at that level, uh, I just met a lot of people. And, and obviously that period of my life in the uh, late 50s, early 60s, I mean, uh, it was a whole different scene in terms of how athletes uh, respected their coaches and kind of the environment they were in was much more disciplined than it is today. Uh, Not saying it was better but that was just kind of the norm uh, at that time when the coach said jump you jumped you know and so at every level you know and uh, but anyway so sports was a big thing for me and then when I uh, got out of the military uh, I had not completed my undergraduate work and uh, so one of the first things I did was to go back and And get a degree uh, which I did and then I went on to law school and then once I finished law school I was on the East Coast I was in Washington DC and uh, ended up working for uh, uh, one of the Kennedy Family Foundations and uh, that experience was kind of a turning point for me as well to be able to uh, go around the country and to see things firsthand in terms of you know going to the south going to Jackson Mississippi you know going to Uh, Corpus Christi, Texas. I mean, I would see how the different uh, ethnic groups were, uh, you know, dealing with the issues they were uh, facing and everything. And so I I saw a lot of things uh, that they were doing and and we were not doing in terms of the Indian community. And so I uh, created a program with some uh, colleagues and we really kind of tackled uh, the uh, what I would call kind of the the legal area in, in terms of the the fact we didn't have have any lawyers I think when I got my law degree there were maybe ten native attorneys in the country uh, and so there was a lot of things that could be done uh, a lot of issues to deal with and everything and so I, I uh, like I say created an organization and uh, that afforded me to really kind of travel the country I mean to be able to uh, see things firsthand and up close you know from uh, Alaska to Florida and from California to Maine you know it's just uh, fun to to uh, see Native people you know uh, on uh, in their communities and everything so it led to a lot of things and and, uh, for the Native community for Indian tribes uh, Washington DC has always been the hub because we've had to deal with the Congress and we've had to deal with the administration regardless who was in office or who held uh, Who was in you know the presidential office and everything and so uh, at that time there was no internet so you had to really rely on I think creating relationships with people when you were kind of face to face and uh, sometimes you would uh, meet people you knew nothing about them Uh, but again I've always been kind of a people person I've enjoyed being around uh, people from you know all different walks of life and uh, I think it served me well and so that kind of uh, It was a a very good educational experience for me and, uh, you know, during that period of my life, I I dealt with a lot of politicians, you know, a lot of people uh, who served in the the Congress and and, uh, a couple who had served in the White House, uh, namely President Carter and and, then President Clinton. And so I was able to see government up close, you know, see how it operated, see how it functioned, see how decisions were made, and at the same time realizing that people are just people. Uh, they may occupy a position but that doesn't mean they uh, uh, know much about your life or your uh, group of people that uh, community that you're part of you know and so it was It was a lot of fun and uh, uh, and then the same thing with the legal profession I was you know, very active on a national basis with the American Bar Association so I saw a lot of uh, lawyers younger lawyers at the time who went on and became judges politicians you know what have you and so been a good life and um, I wouldn't, wouldn't trade it for anything.
0: I bet, I bet that's, uh, sounds amazing. Uh, what, you know, what inspired you, I guess, to go or motivated you to go into school to get your law mm-hmm. degree? I mean, what, if there was, you know, there's no other, you didn't really have, I guess, many lawyers to yeah. look, look up to being a young native man. Um, what, what, what was that process like Uh, you know how many you know what were the obstacles like getting into law school and all that sort of thing?
1: Well the backstory for me in that area was that I had uh, uh, finished my undergraduate work at San Jose State in San Jose California and uh, there was an opportunity for scholarships to attend law school for native uh, individuals and so I saw the the opportunity there and I wasn't sure that I wanted to go into the business world or into the accounting, accounting profession. And they had a summer program, was kind of an orientation program for law school to give you some sense about what, what law school was all about. And so I was accepted for the program, went through the summer program, and before it ended the summer program I had to make the decision, you know, you know, do I want to pursue law? And uh, I decided to, to do that and uh, you know enroll there at the University of Mexico's uh, law school there in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and uh, in in terms of education, I, I think a professional school, especially out at the outset, goes by very quick, very quickly. I mean, my first year in law school is just like a blur, and then is you know being a uh, a three year uh, period that you have to be in law school. Uh, uh, you know, I just can't believe how fast the three years went by, but in the process of learning about you know different subjects in the legal area you learn a lot about history as well and so it just kind of intrigued me and, and fortunately for me I was around a number of uh, of young lawyers who were specializing in Indian law and policy and, and they were doing some amazing things in terms of dealing with some of the uh, contemporary or current issues at that time you know and so, so the motivation was kind of accidental and, uh, but then once I was in law school, I realized how much of a challenge it was. And then as I got closer to finishing, I had to decide what am I going to do with my life? Uh, you know, do I become just kind of a conventional lawyer? Uh, you know, try to get a, law, uh, a job with the firm and, and do th- uh, deal with legal issues that you may not have an interest in dealing with. I mean, because law is a very, you know, broad and diverse, you know, kind of landscape. and. Uh, Uh, there wasn't much being done with uh, with uh, with tribes in terms of their uh, position in and kind of this uh, uh, collection of families governmental families you know and so uh, the states you know the local governments the federal government and then tribal governments you know so so that uh, just kind of continued to tweak my imagination in terms of the things that uh, we were faced with and, and how we would we respond you know and so that's what kind of got me into the field and, uh, the the legal field. And, uh, you know, it's it's been a good journey.
0: Yeah. You know, and, and I know you must be a mentor for a lot of, of young or younger native, uh, lawyers now, because I know you had started the American Indian lawyer training program and, uh, the American Indian resource Institute. Talk about you know what what those were and kind of the impact that they had on on young Native uh, lawyers and, sure. and kids yeah. wanting to actually pursue that field
1: well the uh, I've always you know we designed programs that were people oriented in terms of uh, trying to find people that were interested in you know pursuing a, a direction and what I mean by that is you know entering the, the private practice of law for instance as opposed to maybe going to work for a government and so you know I just kind of saw the need for younger uh, people who say were in law school to really be exposed to the real world in terms of you know working with tribes uh, at their level and so we created intern programs for uh, native law students I think we we accommodated about 140 students over a five-year period and then I saw the need for um, Lawyers should be working for tribes at the tribal level not in DC or state capitals or whatever So we created a fellowship program and we assisted I think 20 Indian attorneys establish a private law practice uh, in in an Indian community representing tribes Uh, the institutions uh, governmental institutions uh, were just evolving uh, within tribes and one of the institutions was their their judicial or court systems and so we created a program to really train and educate people in that area basically you had lay people functioning like lawyers but in courts that didn't require you uh, one to have a, a law degree and we you know had hundreds of people you know, go through the program uh, we created it's kind of a tribal advocacy program then we did a lot of publishing because uh, you know as they say information is power and uh, you know the tribes have uh, Uh, the field of Indian law has been the most active area of the law uh, nationally because you're dealing with governmental issues even today you're dealing with gaming issues uh, natural resource issues and there are always court cases so we would monitor the courts in terms of uh, you know uh, uh, finding out about the opinions that they may render then we would uh, put them in a a publication we call the Indian law reporter and we uh, Uh, we did that for 43 years and we did it up to the point of everything being available now or shifting to the electronic format which is totally totally different and everything. So it allowed us to really uh, you know get into publishing to uh, have the people type programs, intern programs, fellowship program for lawyers, what have you. Then in the late 1990s uh, actually uh, uh, probably late 1980s, uh, Senator Daniel Inouye from Hawaii uh, ended up uh, serving on what they call the Indian Affairs Committee in the, in the United States Senate. And uh, when he became chairman, he had asked me through one of his staff people if I would convene a meeting of tribal leaders on a national basis so he could have an idea of what their agenda was, you know, what their challenges were. And I did that, and uh, after that, uh, one, I developed a very good relationship with the senator uh, who had served 50 years in the US Senate. Amazing. Uh, to, uh, so I ended up organizing uh, about 25 meetings over a 15 over year period with him uh, around the country. And uh, he uh, was the most impressive uh, politician I've ever been around. Uh, he passed away in 2012. Uh, If he were with us today I think he would be uh, I think 98 years old if he was still with us. But he was a remarkable individual and so it kind of led me into a different arena because some of the meetings we would conduct we would uh, basically hold him in the US Senate you know and so we were around you know the the total US Senate uh, in terms of the membership and everything and so and I was kind of like the quarterback I would facilitate the meetings I would organize them and 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 uh, you know uh, with experience I was able to to always read the room and what I mean by that is to make sure we were hearing from people from different regions of the country uh, not just people who were focusing on a particular issue or particular area and everything so it it was a lot of fun and and because of that I kind of developed a reputation, I'm not boasting about it, but I was uh, kind of uh, referred to the guy that could organize meetings, gatherings, and bring people together. And uh, so, you know, that was a lot of fun for me.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm bringing people together from, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of different issues with, um, you know, the different tribes around the country have quite different issues. So it's the getting getting everybody on the same page is probably not the easiest task. Around for sure, um, you know. I wanted to know, uh, Dick, when when did you first come? Like, when did your path cross with Billy Frank Juniors?
1: Billy, uh, that was uh, probably in the seventies. You know, because on the you know the aftermath of the uh, Bold decision, you know, dealing with the fishing issues and everything, uh, uh, you know, our kind of uh, network is small. I mean, you have a lot of tribes, but the, the more activists, we would kind of in some way meet each other you know and then obviously uh, you know just connected with uh, with Billy as a, a good personal friend and uh, you know we always be, could address issues in a constructive way because even the idea of bringing people together a lot of the people we brought together were non-native you know people that maybe we disagree with but let's come together and you know find out uh, what we disagree on but uh, Billy was just unique I mean he was a real kind of populist figure everybody loved him you know he just spoke from the heart I mean he wasn't an, an educated person but he was educated uh, in, in life more than most people I mean how he would interact and how he would in many respects uh, control you know his rage I mean because some of the issues that they dealt with uh, uh, you know it, it'd be very easy to be very uh, unforgiving in terms of how you were treated or what-have-you and so over the years, I mean, we always stayed in, in close contact. And uh, there were uh, a number of other people of of uh, Billy's generation, you know, that I was fortunate to be around. And uh, and I, I saw tribal leaders um, when they had nothing or very little. And then fast forward to today, where some of the tri- uh, tribal leaders have done amazing things for their communities. I mean, you know, dealing with educational issues, dealing with health issues. You know, just uh, obviously uh, a lot of tribes have been very successful with with gambling, you know, and uh, on a national basis, uh, the gaming uh, sector, and what I mean by that is all casinos, what have you, no matter where they're at. Well, the tribes control about 45% of that market, you know, 45% of the revenue, and uh, pre-pandemic, I think they had uh, generated about 39 billion you know in one year and it's it's higher now Uh, but as gaming evolves I mean because as we're now into uh, sports betting uh, online gaming in in some areas some states uh, there are some states that have their lotteries online what have you so that that whole area is I don't want to say in flux but it's it's evolving and changing uh, in terms of the options that are available so it, it was really enjoyable from me from my standpoint to see what some of the tribes did with that money that they would generate from gaming and they've done some amazing things, you know, and uh, An example of, you've got the Seminole tribe in Florida, you know And the uh, the football stadium down here is named after the Hard Rock uh, entity which they own that's their branding and so they operate globally uh, in terms of with Hard Rock Uh, cafes and resorts uh, all over the world you know and so it's kind of amazing and they've been good good uh, uh, citizens and in terms of contributing uh, you know to a community I mean the the number of jobs they offer or number of employees they have their philanthropy has been very very good and as a person interested in sports I think even say for instance with the Seminoles uh, they uh, have a steakhouse in Yankee Stadium you know who would have thought an Indian tribe could have a steakhouse you know in a, in a baseball stadium uh, and on a national basis all the professional um, entities the NBA, the NFL you know, NHL, uh, Major League Baseball there are an amazing number of tribes that are sponsors of uh, a lot of these teams in some of the arenas you know that have been named after their you know uh, the the tribe or, or the name that they uh, they use. I mean, in Phoenix, the Talking Stick Arena, although they've changed their name now, that was really uh, uh, funded or connected by the Salt River Indian Reservation there in Scottsdale you know and, and we were uh,
0: just talking about how the one of the spring training facilities down yeah. in Arizona is also yeah. and that
1: tribe has the the spring training facility for the the D-backs and the Rockies so, because most of the teams share these facilities you right. know which makes sense from a cost standpoint and everything so in the sports world there i mean the Lakers I mean you has got on the list of it you was know, the Celtics uh, the uh, I've not seen anything with the Knicks uh, in terms of being in New York City uh, but you know, you, the warriors and, and uh, the Bay area and stuff, uh, it, it's just amazing, but it's all marketing. And I think that's the reason they do it. And they had the visibility for their, their uh, business or what have you and everything, but it, it amounts to hundreds of millions of marketing dollars. Yeah. So it's so who would have thought these tribes would be in, and, you know, that part of the business world.
0: Yeah. Uh, uh you, you, know, while we're on the subject of, of sports and, and professional sports, um, I'll, I'd love to get your opinion. I've asked Willie before, and, and he's given his opinion on the names of the different teams, like the Washington football team's yep. former name. Um, I can't remember what they're called now. The yeah, the Commanders. Commanders, yeah. there you go. and the, Or the, the Cleveland Guardians. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, what what was your feel? I, I mean, are you—is it— are you glad to see this change?
1: Well, I, I think it's good. I think that, uh, for instance, the, I think the University of Florida or Florida State, you know, their uh, kind of mascot of the name is the Seminoles, right? you know, and so I think if the uh, tribes in a particular area go along with it, and that's their business, you know, but I think the, the, the Redskins, uh, I mean, Washington, that was, you know, just a kind of a derogatory term, and it had to go. You know, and obviously Snyder, the owner, at, you know, 10 years ago said there was no way he would ever change uh, that name, but he finally, you know, realized that he had to change. And I think same thing with uh, the Cleveland Indians and, to some extent, the Atlanta Braves. Uh, but these changes are happening. I, there are some of the names, even Kansas City, I mean, the Chiefs. Uh, it's not so much the name sometimes as it is the, the things that the, uh, the audience, the know will do I mean like obviously the Braves were well known for that tomahawk chop you know whatever so some of those uh, things don't resonate with 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 tribal people right. and the caricatures they would have sometimes on you know uh, uh, Cleveland Indians, yeah, beer yeah, glasses like, uh, or you know or whatever it was yeah. they were very kind of uh, negative in a sense and so so on one hand, it's it's good to see that change happen, and on the other hand, I think if a community if it's done in a respectful way, but we're seeing more of the uh, schools and the um, professional uh, sports franchises and everything kind of move away from, you know, from any uh, uh, logo or you know moniker that refers to a particular ethnic group, you yeah, know, and no, so and there obviously good. there are plenty of options too, you know, to. Name teams after and everything so
0: yeah i know with the seattle kraken here the hockey team in seattle mm-hmm. uh, they were debating what the name was going to be for quite mm-hmm. a while i was i was hoping for the totems personally because uh-huh. i thought that mm-hmm. would have been a pretty cool name yeah. but uh, and and you know embrace some of the the native <coughs> culture in our area that that runs so so deeply um but unfortunately they went yeah. with the Kraken. So. Well that
1: and I think they've kind of their uniforms again there's kind of a, a native influence uh, Yeah, that's uh, that is which true. is oh, a yes, very positive did. thing and uh, you know because it's um, yeah so I mean it's, it's real positive change and everything but it uh, is kind of at the end of the day you want you don't want to see an obstacle interfere with the game. <laughs> You know right, right. and sometimes it would, that it would impact how a team may be uh, viewed just with a, a name that had people perceived to be negative, you know right
0: Well, uh, going back to uh, Billy Frank Jr, I wanted to know um, fr- from your personal opinion, you know wh- what how do you feel when you hear that um, your friend of many years is going to get a statue? Put up in the, the halls of Congress as I think one of only two uh, he'll be the second maybe um, yeah, native it, statue it, I believe it, it'd be the third oh, there's third. A, yeah That's there's a,
1: a chief Washakie from uh, Wyoming I think there's a statue of him there and then there's a statue of a, of a Pueblo Indian from uh, New Mexico okay yeah now I think it's amazing uh, I think that uh, you know recognizing what Billy kind of fought for, Uh, over decades Uh, and I think the remarkable thing about you know Billy is he would always speak from the heart which was always good to see He was just kind of a simple person uh, and uh, just you know just was a great speaker very passionate and he would criticize uh, sometimes uh, not so much people but uh, positions that you know say state officials would take or what-have-you or even the corporate world, and and after a speech, you you could see him hugging the person that maybe he was, uh, you know, uh, you, know uh, you know, directing remarks at remarks at, and not necessarily a favorable light. But I think that he he just had that you know that skill that you don't learn from a textbook, and he was just really able to connect and communicate. And uh, there were uh, I had to the luxury I guess uh, and good fortune of just saying a lot of orators uh, you know from different tribes uh, but there was no one like Billy. uh, Billy had this sense of humor uh, this passion that you could just you you could just feel when he was speaking and some of the others who were powerful speakers were more uh, you know I, I I don't know how to really describe it other than that they were there was a little bit of anger in some of their remarks, you know, and which is understandable. But uh, the facts were always on their side, you know, in terms of how they would craft their remarks. I mean, you know, the facts don't lie, and uh, you know, be it natural resource issues, land issues, you know, what have you, you know. And so, uh, I always kept very, you know, close contact with the Billy, especially in the later years, in terms of always wondering how. Uh, because uh, he could be a lightning rod <laughs> how people would treat him uh, and he, he would laugh about it and then I would always ask him well how are the Indians treating you and he'd laugh about it <laughs> because they can be uh, as aggressive as as aggressive as anybody else when it comes to dealing with an issue and which side of the issue they're on you yeah. know so but he was beloved by everybody in the country because the meetings I would organize and stuff Billy was always there and he just enjoyed being around, you know, tribal people from different parts of the country. You know, be it if we were in Hawaii or Florida or wherever, Billy just uh, uh, would attract people because uh, he was you know, very humble and very real. You know.
0: Yeah, and no, yeah, I've told Willie this before. I think like growing up and having, you know, getting to see him on, on like a pretty regular basis, or you know, or, or you know, interacting with him, um, we didn't really realize how influential he was on the world uh, you know mm-hmm. it, let alone on our local area here in in western washington i mean he's he's truly you know like one of the the most iconic leaders that there's that there is you know that mm-hmm. and uh you know it's it's uh it's great that um there yeah i'm so excited for the the statue to get put up too oh, yeah, it'll, it'll be willie's been willie's been working hard uh getting that that set up as well so
1: they, um, you know, it'll be a fantastic, you know, event when it happens and everything to have it installed there, and uh, uh, and it's good. I mean, to have some sense of permanence in a facility like, you know, Statuary Hall you know, in Congress and everything. So it'll be very nice uh, because when you go to Washington and you see the monuments, you know, uh, around D.C., uh, there's never been a monument of Native Americans. I mean, you see, you know, people from Europe or South America being honored you know, in terms of a statue outdoors you know and, and uh, so now with uh, Statuary Hall with you know three statues you know, uh, reflecting, reflecting the lives of indigenous people. Now I know that just like Billy I mean th- those uh, uh, statues can be temporary you know, in, in terms of if a, 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 a state legislature and a state administration if they want to choose to uh, recognize somebody else, but I think that what we're seeing, even with some of the, the statues in different areas, I mean, certainly we hear about uh, you know statues in uh, regarding the Civil War, I mean the South and everything, and Robert E. Lee or whoever, a lot of those statues are being taken down, uh, you know. So it, uh, but you know, they're symbolic, and uh, you know, so it, it's going to be you know, kind of amazing to see that that happen for uh, yeah. recognition of Billy.
0: Yeah, I saw a comedian or somebody say, you know, when, when these people are getting so upset about these Confederate statues or, you know, Civil War statues mm-hmm. of these people that did horrible things, you know, yeah. that they said that um, they should let George Washington's statue stay, but then put, because I guess there's a statue of him on a horse at Mount Vernon, and they said, that's fine, let the statue stay, but then put like 3,000 statues of slaves around him Uh and then we can we can let that we'll let it slide then so that it has to be explained every time somebody goes to Mm -hmm. goes to see it but
1: uh, yeah it's amazing i mean the you know so many people of that period you know the uh, uh, 1800s in particular uh you know were slave owners uh there were native americans who owned slaves you know and uh, primary tribes from the the east coast uh, you know the Cherokees and Creeks and Chickasaws when they were removed, some were removed to Oklahoma. So there are issues even around that in terms of Native Americans having slaves, mm. you know, and so it's uh, in history, I guess when you you hear these things anymore, nothing surprises you when they dig into people's backgrounds and everything. yeah, and uh,
0: yeah, when they, when you deep dive far enough, I guess you know, everybody yeah every uh every race and creed has some has some explaining to do i guess on some oh yeah definitely Um, but you know dick what would you say i guess if you had to pinpoint one or two things would be the the biggest issues facing you know indigenous people in the united states right now um you know like what what do you think you know what would what would uh, Billy Frank Jr. be working on with you right now? Like, what, what? what in your opinion, what, what's the, the biggest issues?
1: Yeah. Well, I, I think you, you always hear the word you know tribal sovereignty, and sovereignty is something that is inherent. I mean, uh, in terms of, you know, tribes, you know, in the United States as we know them, uh, those inherent rights were never taken away. So theoretically, you know, you have the power to kind of chart your own course. And, and over time, that's been impacted by, obviously, uh, starting uh, pretty much in the, the late 1700s, after the, uh, the U.S. became uh, what it is today, a republic, uh, there were treaties entered into. And the treaties, uh, you, know, the, the, you know, the leaders at that time, they didn't understand what was in a treaty. I mean, they got them to sign it or scratch an X or what have you. And so there were a lot of sessions made in these treaties land in particular, you know. So historically, when you look at uh, eras or periods that you know that uh, the Native community has experienced, I mean, you basically, the initial treaties were for peace, you know, and uh, but they wanted to also confine uh, the indigenous people to a particular area because that's how they could relate to them. Uh, but the treaty period I mean there were probably uh, I don't know maybe as many as 600 treaties negotiated but a treaty isn't effective unless it's been ratified by the US Senate and so and uh, there were 371 treaties that were ratified uh, up until about 1870 and at that time they discontinued making treaties the reason being there was uh, you know kind of conflict or a disagreement in the Congress because only the Senate ratifies treaties and the House had no role and so the House wanted to say "Well, wait a minute we we don't agree with these treaty making and so those treaties really kind of you know started to confine uh, tribes they started to kind of um, you know reduce their homelands or their you know the the land that they occupied Uh, and it was a way for them to basically kind of what they would call quiet title they would say well we have the ownership now Uh, so that whole period but through you know starting from the the time that this country was you know formed as we know it there have been different periods in terms of federal policies and treatments that have affected Native people everything from okay you have these treaties you in essence really take some land from them and uh, you you place them on reservations you uh, remove uh, some of the the tribes like say from the east coast in particular with the Cherokee the Chickasaw the creeks you know taking them and physically moving them you know to um, uh, Oklahoma.
0: And They did the same with your your tribe? They did well
1: yeah you know my tribe I mean originally the, the Dakota Sioux are from kind of the the Minnesota area and uh, there uh, there was what they call the Dakota War in 1862 uh, Lincoln was president And what they did was to uh, basically kind of capture uh, over 300 Dakota Sioux males and they were going to execute all of them. But uh, Lincoln uh, intervened and they only ended up uh, hanging 38 of them all at once. So it was the only mass execution in the history of this country on American soil. And so then the Dakota Sioux they were basically in a concentration camp near Minneapolis to St. Paul Uh, and so they split them up so you ended up having these Dakota Sioux uh, 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 members some place in Nebraska some place in South Dakota North Dakota Minnesota what-have-you to kind of disperse them Uh, and uh, uh, you know so that you know in terms of my tribe and being a descendant of those people who that were uh, were uh, uh, some that were hanged and then uh, the ones that were removed into South Dakota and then eventually moved back down into or moved to Nebraska and everything. So the histories of of the country uh, and and at that time uh, after the Civil War, uh, after any war there's always challenges to uh, what do you do with the military that you formed to Um, engage in the war you know the military become home what do you do with them Mm -hmm. you know and so what they did was they basically wanted to exterminate Indians and so the country was carved up into departments you know and the idea was to go into these regions or these areas you know try to you take control to really uh, uh, in essence eliminate the Indian You know, and so, you know, and some people use the term genocide as as, as a strong term, but it actually happened, you know. And so you had these, you know, kind of the different War Department uh, terminology in terms of how they were going to settle the country. Uh, Because in in hindsight, it's a very recent experience for this continent. You know, I mean, when you you date back, when you go back to the late 1700s, fast forward and, you know, it's uh, over 400 years, but that's four years is a blip on the time map. Uh, and so some of the tribes were removed during a period. You know, some tribes were confined to reservations. Uh, in fact, every tribe they wanted to confine to a reservation. Uh, and then over time, I mean, you know, you know uh, really uh, you know, having to you know, participate because in some respects you could say that tribes have dual citizenship, meaning they're a member of a tribe and only tribal members, they determine their membership. But you're also a member of the state that you're in, that you live in, and you're a member of the, of the federal government. So, in a sense, uh, you know, you, you you because the tribes they have total control over their communities in terms of being able to determine membership, who's an Indian, who isn't, and you know, obviously some view it differently. Uh, but those periods over time, uh, and then as late as the 1950s, when they wanted to terminate tribes, they wanted to. End this relationship that they had with them, this kind of federal-tribal trust relationship, uh, and so when Eisenhower was in office, and uh, you know that was the thing they started to do, and uh, it happened here in Washington State, ha- happened big time in California, uh, happened to some of the other states. So there were a series of laws enacted to try to justify what they did, uh, and sometimes taking away their jurisdictional authority. And I don't mean to kind of get in the weeds on this, but there's a there, there's a the, the, a doctrine called the doctrine of, you know, kind of plenary power, which means the federal government can do whatever it wants to anybody. You know, they they can, you know, say, You can't sue me, you know or you know, what have you and so with the tribes, they have the power to kind of complete power over the tribes. But in some respects, it, it would, it's embarrassing for the country based on the principles we think we live by to tell a group of people and the original occupants of this country that you can't do this, you can't do that, or what have you. you know? But anyway, so that's a... So all this, uh, you know, the things that I'm kind of rambling about, I mean, has an impact.
0: You know, I, Dick, yeah. I'm, like, I'm yeah. hooked on your every word, man. You're not, yeah. you're, you're not taking us in the weeds too much, <laughs> keep going.
1: But it, it's a, you know it's been an amazing uh, experience for I think tribes over time. I mean you know they, they literally lost over ninety million acres of land, and today they probably uh, collectively occupy about two percent of the landmass in the country. You know from going to the from the being the original inhabitants, you know of the continent, you know to end up with two percent of the land. You know, and some of that land in some states has become very valuable because of uh, natural resources—oil, gas, uranium, coal, what have you. Um, and as I mentioned earlier about inherent, you know, sovereign rights. Uh, by having the inherent sovereignty, that's what enabled them to have gaming. You know, they they chose to get into that sector, and uh, they've been uh, you know, very successful with it. Uh, but anyway, so there's there's a lot to you know, kind of reflect on when when kind of when person looks at a timeline in terms of history, what's really happened over the past 400 years or whatever, you know? Yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah, that, uh, that's in, incredible. And because a lot, you know, I I took a class in college about that kind of looked at different societies, like how the Irish were treat, treated when mm-hmm. they came here, but. It, Really dove into, into oh, yeah. Native Americans and, and the way they were treated um, throughout throughout history and you know it's like yeah they would they'd move a tribe onto a reservation and then they would come through and put a railroad when they decided mm-hmm. to put the railroad cut that right through the middle of it yep. cut it in half or like you know Willie's talked about um, and I know Billy uh, also worked on this that about how there's uh, you know huge power lines going through the middle yep. of nisqually tribe here and he's working working now to uh get that get those removed basically and and rerouted off of their off of their land which and i think he said the government wants them to pay a ton of money to to do that it's like this is our land you should just get them off of here but um yeah i mean that's yeah it's incredible yeah
1: no it is and i think that uh, you know to put things in perspective in in terms of the uh, you know, they say there are like 500, you know, 75, you know, tribes or native communities in the country. Uh, 211 of them are in the state of California. You know, probably 240 are in the state of Alaska. So there's only about 200 others that are spread around the, what we call the lower 48 states. Uh, the the two largest. Uh, Uh, indigenous groups that control land or the Navajo reservation that their reservation spills over into three states Utah New Mexico and Arizona it's about 17 million acres it's the same size as the state of West Virginia so they got the land mass but they don't have the political power you know and so you know they, they they're you know very challenged with having to deal with three state legislatures three governors three congressional delegations you go to Alaska, you know, and it was amazing because Alaska, you know, didn't become a state until 1959. And Alaska, as a state, is over 300 million acres, and uh, the so they had to quiet title to Alaska. Who owns the land because of the when they discovered oil up there? So in 1971, they act enacted a claim settlement act where the natives were able to. Uh, lay claim to uh, what turned out to be, uh, I think uh, I think it's 44 million acres. So almost a sixth of the state. But what they did, they also uh, had the natives uh, be formed as corporations. And corporations, in a sense, where they have to deal with everything a corporation deals with. You know, and they're chartered by the state of Alaska. So it kind of had an impact on their sovereignty. Uh, which they agreed to, I mean, the Congressional Act and everything, you know. But those are two examples uh, that, uh, you know, in terms of having, uh, still being able to hang on to some land, but not really having the political power because you don't have the population, you know. And uh, you know, at one time, I mean, 100% of the uranium mine in this country came off in Indian reservations and it left behind a lot of health issues because uh, the uh, reclamation wasn't really uh, done the way it should have been done Uh, you know fast forward today I mean we have a lot of concerns about water uh, on a national basis especially on a west wide basis Uh, you know what the country is going through and the impact of climate change or what have you you know so it's very very interesting even like a state of Arizona for instance the tribes there are 21 tribes in Arizona they own collectively they own a third of the state but they don't have the political power Mm -hmm. You know, And so uh, Arizona is probably close to 75 million acres and the tribes own about almost 25 million acres. Uh, and you have the different tribes. And I've always, uh, over time, really, when, when I've talked to different people or people have asked questions about it, I've always uh, uh, kind of compared Indian tribes to Europe. And the reason I say that, uh, you go to Europe and you're interested in the French, you're in the Brits, you know the Italians you know all these different ethnic groups on one kind of continent. Well you come to the United States you have the Seminoles, you have the Apaches, you have the Navas, they're different people uh, and different culturally uh, linguistically you know what have you and uh, but the reason we we've kind of viewed as being one uh, is because we're lumped into one basket so to speak to deal with the federal government for funding you know for, you know, for in, any kind of recognition on you know, issues or what have you. And so the diversity amongst indigenous people on this continent you know, is staggering. I mean, the Eskimos are much different than the Seminoles or the Apaches or the Navajo, whatever. And there's a beauty in every culture. I mean, I've had the good fortune of you know going to Europe a number of times and into the, uh, the, uh, the, you know the Far East in terms of Japan and you know other countries in that part of the world. And the beauty in any culture uh, is something to appreciate and respect uh, and when it comes to food music you know language what have you and and uh, you know I think it's you know, kind of what Rodney King used to say after he went through what he went can't we just all get along <laughs> but but I think we we can if people can understand each other a little more what you were saying about history I know when I was in college uh, you know, taking American history. nothing said about Indians. It's like, how can you leave out the uh, the indigenous people, the first inhabitants of the continent? like we didn't exist. But again, in history, books were written by people uh, you know that you know, kind of gave their point of reference or you know they shaped the history as it was taught, and it just left out you know some of the people of color. It's changing now. You know, but we still have a long ways to go. Again, something yeah. Willie's
0: working hard on with the local schools here. To, yeah. You know, they're with the because we didn't get. I mean, uh, outside of um, you know knowing Billy, like we didn't mm-hmm. get a whole lot of education oh, yeah. on on the issues that had faced you know the the native tribes here, especially the Squally. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely. I'm I'm so thankful that. Willie's working so hard on that and and the other yeah. uh, tribal members there uh, at the Nisqually tribe so um yeah, I you can, know can. I, I want to get into some more fun stuff too okay. <laughs> but um, I do want to know I wanted I had one question that's kind of been just kind of stuck in my head and I, I, I would like to know what you would say to your 18 year old self like getting ready to embark on on your journeys like knowing what you know now like would you how would you advise your your younger self yeah. I guess
1: well the first thing is education you know I think to the experience of you know uh going through college you know, even you know, law school or what have you I mean it's just uh it, you know it's a foundation you you never regret regret and depend and no matter how you use it uh I mean because I certainly didn't use uh my undergraduate degree, which was in accounting. Uh, I knew what the accounting profession was and I had opportunities to, to uh, be in that profession and I chose not to. Uh, going to law school, I mean, as I mentioned, law is a very diverse uh, uh, field and it continues to evolve. And uh, I didn't want to be a kind of, what one would view as kind of a contemporary lawyer or a, a lawyer that was more predictable. I wanted to deal with other issues uh, and I wanted to learn about Indian cultures, which I was able to learn about in the process of doing what I was a part of. So I would say to any young person, uh, boy, get all the education you can. And your life choices sometimes, you don't know what you're, what's really gonna be uh, attractive, to, attracted, uh, attractive to you and will kind of set you on your journey. Because I had no idea that I would be doing what I'm doing or what I have the past few decades and everything. Uh, I don't know if it was fate, or whatever but I wouldn't trade it for anything um, and it's really being able to experience things and I, I think also to just uh, learn about and respect other cultures you know because you, you just never know I mean who you will who you can connect with um, and and to some extent if you have the opportunity to travel you know I mean to be able to see you know, different cultures different countries uh, different mores where you know wherever you're at and, and uh, that happened to me and, and not by design. I just fell into it. I mean uh, uh, and we were talking sports about the fun stuff. I mean uh, you know one of the programs that we created I, was my idea I wanted to see my niece and nephews get out of where they were living, where they grew up just because they could go away and you can always come back. And so but one of the components of that was sports. And so I had the good fortune of serving on a board with Larry O'Brien, who was a you know commissioner of the NBA, yeah. and and uh, I hit him up for uh, finding me a pro athlete, an NBA player, to do clinics for any kids. Uh, Ethel Kennedy was serving on the foundation board for the NFL, NFL when Pete Rozelle was the commissioner, and so she uh, arranged a meeting with me with, for meeting me to meet with Pete Rozelle. So I go up to New York, meet with him, and. Uh, they gave our youth program twenty-five thousand a year for a few years, you know, to wow. be supportive. and so it was just asking, and, and they, uh, you know, they responded. And here in the northwest, Jim Whittaker, when he uh, was ran REI, uh, Jim being the first American to climb Mount Everest, and then I asked REI to give some stuff for this youth program, and they did. Uh, so there, you know, three very influential people you know, in their respective areas, and they all contributed. It was bit, uh, so but it was a lot of fun. But I think, too, if you, uh, in essence, really kind of deliver, if you achieve what you say you want to do, it makes them happy for you and they will continue to be supportive. Um, you know, and so my kind of interaction in the professional sports world, I, I always remember when I uh, met uh, Pete Rosell. There was a young man by the name of Ernie Acorsi, and Ernie was kind of a staffer, what have you. And then he went on and became, I don't know, kind of like the general manager for the Cleveland Browns.
0: Right, you know, yeah, cause, they were, the name, yeah,
1: right. cause they were kind of paying their dues and all of a sudden, I mean, that, that was the the uh, vocation they chose and they rose to the top. And it was a gentleman from the Dallas Cowboys who was a, I don't know, and, and whatever. And, and, uh, and I would kind of meet these guys and uh, mostly, mostly men, um, you know, and just connect with them and they'd learn more about me or what I hoped I would see. And my sister has run this youth program called Indian Youth, youth of America, and she just finished her 43rd year. She's had thousands of kids go through the youth program, wow. from Native kids from around the country, mostly in the West and everything. And uh, you know, it's just kind of believing in people, because I think there are a lot of good people out there. And I've, I've always, in some respects, viewed life as a big puzzle. Everybody's a piece. You just don't know when you're gonna find that piece and put it in its place. <laughs> and in some respects, you know, that's what I uh, have, have done and uh, I used to deal with the philanthropic world in New York with the large foundations Because we always needed funding, but we would only take funding to do what we wanted to do not to dangle something in front of me to say well if you do this, but uh, yeah, your heart's got to be in it, you know, to want to wanna do it and everything but you know i've found just uh, like i say there are a lot of good people out there and it's it's uh you know if you have the opportunity to create a relationship you know be respectful and and uh you know treat them uh like you want to be treated you know? yeah
0: yeah that's uh that's great advice that's great advice uh for anybody let alone for for 18 year old dick um, yeah yeah uh you know i wanted to know i know so Truth be told, we did this podcast about three weeks ago, and, and we had some technical <laughs> issues that uh, we didn't realize till after uh, the podcast was over. So we're redoing it now. But I know Willie would be yelling at me to ask you about Bill Walton and some of your Bill Walton yep. stories and your your interaction yep. with uh, with the.
1: Uh, well, Bill. It, it's been a remarkable relationship because, uh, as I mentioned, I had. Uh, asked Larry O'Brien to help me uh, find a basketball player, NBA player. And at the time, Bill Russell was coaching the Sonics. Okay. You know, and so I reached out to him. I didn't hear back from him, but all of a sudden, out of the blue, Bill calls me. The, the Trailblazers before they won the title. And because uh, he was living in a small community called Sandy outside of Portland on the way to the Warm Springs Reservation, uh, which is a beautiful area. Uh, and so he called me and he said, I'll do it. Because at the time, you know, Bill's speech impediment, uh, his stuttering was very pronounced, and everything. And so, we got together, and we just hit it off. And so he did his clinics uh, there in Oregon, in South Dakota, and on the Navajo Reservation. And I would set him up, and we'd go. And and so, uh, you know, and right away, I just kind of really enjoyed Bill's uh, the, the character he was. And so I would, as I just enjoyed the style that he played when he was with the Blazers and even with the Celtics and even when he was with the Clippers. And so uh, I would go around the country watching him play and uh, it was always fun because you'd you know see the games up close, and be sitting courtside or two or three rows back and it's a <laughs> whole different game when you're that close. Yeah. And we just developed a relationship and then his four boys, uh, uh, Adam, Chris, uh, uh, Luke and Nate, uh, uh, Luke uh, Walton is really named after Maurice Lucas, who okay. uh, Bill was very close to when he was with the Blazers, and obviously Maurice passed away. But uh, but we just stay in constant contact, and, and I could call Bill tomorrow, and it's just like I, you know, the, the time hasn't you know, changed or whatever. And I uh, always had a lot of respect for his parents. Uh, his uh, mother is still uh, still with us. But they're just remarkable people. I think his, you know, uh, mother was a librarian. His father was a social worker. You know, and so he was very grounded. And I think I shared the story before when Bill was into basketball. Ever since he was, you know, in high school, he was you know big time athlete there in the San Diego area. Would, uh, when he went to UCLA, but he was he told his dad one time that I'm going to go to the NBA and we're going to win the title. I'm going to be the most valuable player. And I'm going to get a pickup or a truck, you know, and I'm going to give it to you. And so his dad looked back at him. He said, uh, "What's the NBA?" Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, and and Bill had a brother Bruce who played for the for the Cowboys. Uh, you know, he also attended UCLA, and Bruce was uh, older than Bill, and he just passed away not too long ago. Uh, what a remarkable family, and and I think the impact Bill has had on his boys or his sons. Uh, they've all done well they all played college basketball and but anyway I I used to just uh, enjoy watching uh uh Bill's uh the way he would play when he was at UCLA was kind of amazing to watch and you know you you just appreciate you know uh, sometimes the the way they play I mean just like living in the Bay Area where the way uh, in the whole country appreciates the way the Warriors play you know you know to watch Clay and those those guys the way they play ball you know
0: no, it's true. Yeah, that, that's amazing. Uh, and he's, yeah. If I I don't even care like what game because yeah, Bill Walton does, uh, broadcasting now, he's a color analyst on ESPN and the Pac-12 networks. And if I don't even care if I see him calling a game, I'm gonna stop and watch it. I don't care if it's yeah. the two worst teams in, in the uh, in in college basketball, I'll, I'll take a, take a couple hours out of my day and watch it. But um, you know, th- can you tell us the story about um, going to the Grateful Dead concert with, oh, with yeah. Bill? Oh, well,
1: yeah. Well, Bill, obviously, being probably the biggest uh, deadhead, uh, you know, he would go to their concerts you know, all over the country, and he had these pictures in his home where he went to a Grateful Dead con- uh, concert in Egypt. Oh, wow. And, and so he has one picture showing where they were going to play that night, outdoors in pyramids and everything, and then he had this other photo, Within the concert actually taking place, and so Bill always wanted me to, you know, to uh, go with him to some of these events. And so one New Year's, uh, the Grateful Dead were playing in in Oakland, and Bill Graham, uh, the promoter, he was Father Time, and and so Bill got me to go with him, which my wife never gave forgave me for going, <laughs> but because uh, I was sitting up on the stage. Uh, the the dead were playing, and they had a nice little area where I think Bill was broadcasting for the USA Network New Year's Eve show. And uh, I was just sitting there watching the crowd, and uh, the uh, the other the comedian who the the priest I forget, are he dressed like a priest? Him and Bill were doing the you know the the commentating there and everything. They had a big tub of uh, beer and whatever you wanted to drink, and we were kind of out of sight. But I was just watching the crowd, and uh, that. Uh, Coliseum there in Oakland was packed you know with from little kids to people in their 70s or whatever they were deadheads and so Bill was always just a lot of fun and he always he, he just uh, he was so respectful and uh, he enjoyed being around people and uh, to give an example of that in the summertime my family and I we'd go down there and see him in San Diego and we'd stay at his home and everything and he would put a tag on one of the bedroom doors saying it was, Dick Trudell is staying here until a certain date or whatever, don't bother him. But he would have fantastic dinners because uh, he had a beautiful home, but we'd sit outside and he'd have a priest, he'd have a business agent. Uh, uh, not talking about sports, it was issues of the day. That's you know, because Bill went to law school for a year and a half at Stanford. Oh, wow. When he played for the Clippers, because he was injured. And then Sterling, uh, the owner at the time, you know, he said that we're paying you, you're going to games. And so Bill had to drop out of law school. And uh, and at the time, uh, Paul Silas was coaching the Clippers. And I remember going down to uh, uh, Dallas to watch them play the Mavericks. And so after the game, uh, uh, si- Paul Silas and Bill and myself were kind of at the bar having a drink and everything. and. Uh, because when I was in college, we played Creighton when Silas played, played for Creighton. Oh, wow. And so uh, we just just sitting there, but I remember Tom Chambers, and uh, there was one ro- uh, rookie out of one of the Eastern schools that was very good. I mention it because they came up and they wanted Bill's autograph for some friends of theirs, <laughs> you know. But it's always amazing to see, I think any athlete sometimes, uh, especially when they're very young, they look so mature on the court, the playing field, or whatever. You see them in person. They're just kids. Yeah. You know, and, uh, but I always remember that because they came up there and I think Chambers had his sport jacket was about six inches too short on his sleeves. And we, uh, we kind of came over there and said they wanted to get some autographs for their friends. Oh, that's great. But, but Bill was, uh, yeah, and so the, the New Year's Eve show, I mean, it was, uh, it was amazing. I mean, I, wasn't necessarily a big Deadhead fan or whatever, but Bill wanted me to go. so I went with him and everything. And I probably could have uh, sold that ticket for a lot of money
0: and (laughs) said, I ain't going to sell his ticket or whatever.
1: (laughs) But he uh, he just, he's got a real social conscience. I think about people and I've always been intrigued the way he does his homework on even Pac-12 Teams. I mean, he'll in the families, and he'll you know, he gives you all this kind of trivia sometimes that you're like, know, okay, he really does his homework, and uh, you know, he's just a just a remarkable human being, and you know, a lot of fun to be around. And
0: people love him. You know, we uh, myself and my brother Brandon, who's my normal co-host on the show, we had uh, Washington Huskies season tickets up until uh, the pandemic hit, and uh, for basketball, and you'd see if he was there calling the game you'd see him you know you can't miss him he's yeah. you know, so tall and uh that the at the university of washington they're up on like the hundred level where they call the game from instead mm-hmm. of being down courtside and you'd see that there'd be a, a half the arena was over there waiting for him to come yeah, yeah. out after the game oh, to yeah. get an autograph or a picture or shake his hand or whatever the case may be so i mean He really, uh, you know, people really, really love him. You
1: can tell. Oh, Bill loves people. I mean, he just enjoys, you know, engaging. And uh, it was interesting because, uh, you know, Bill was approached by Nike, Phil Knight, when he started the business, you know, for Bill to do uh, have a shoe contract and Bill turned it down, (laughs) you know, and Bill did have a shoe contract with Adidas. And and for, uh, he did very well, but, toward the end of that contract or when they ended the contract bill was getting gear for his friends and everything and i think odita oh, privacy wait a minute you know it uh, <laughs> and that uh, he ended that contract and everything but uh, he was ahead of his time and i always always uh, when you even watch the uh, uh the 30 for 30 uh show with McHale and Bird, i mean you know the comment that bird made about when uh, He'd, uh, Mikhail asked him, he said, What's the best team you've ever played on? And it was the year that the Celtics won with Walton. Yeah. You know, but I think when Bill, when they were kids, I mean, that's they had his poster on the wall. Yeah. You know, then to be playing with him and everything. And uh, But Bill was just, uh, you know, he, he just uh, practiced the fundamentals. There wasn't any shortcut. I mean, you play the game the way it's supposed to be played, you know, and, uh, you know, he was able to. Uh, you know, to really live up to that, and uh, even the stories about uh, John Wooden. I mean, Bill. Uh, it, it, he had this real nice uh, letter frame from Wooden after they won the title uh, uh, with the bla- the Blazers. And uh, the, the letter basically com- uh, he complimented Bill and the Blazers for winning the title, but he ended the letter with, you know, get a haircut. <laughs> <You> know, it's <laughs> like clean yourself up physically. Always a quote, but like a parent. Right. You know, and but when he tells those stories, and and uh, you know, he was an example. Wooden was an example. If uh, if players uh, didn't uh, do what he told, uh, told them to do, uh, he, he would remind that I'm the coach, and I make I let you know if you're going to play or not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know that kind of attitude. No uh, kidding. But no. Uh, but he's a remarkable human being, and uh, again, I have been fortunate to have had that relationship with people like him, and in the politics with Senator Antway, Senator Kennedy. You know, I've been around some of the you know, some of the most powerful people, Yeah. You know, but they were at the end of the day, they're just people doing a job.
0: You know. Right. Well, Dick, I feel like we could talk for hours, and I know we're gonna do this yeah. again. I know Willie uh, Willie's gonna get that set up so we can uh, do this on maybe a more regular basis too. Um, course, just yeah. to hear some more stories, and um, yeah, I, I appreciate you coming back and doing this. This is a that's amazing. It's a real treat for me to kind of be able to do something you know, aside from, from our normal uh, programming here. And, and uh, you are, you're an amazing human being. I appreciate you so much for, for coming coming back over and, and sitting down and, and, you know, telling some of your stories.
1: Well, I, I, it's been an honor, uh, Jeremy, and I really respect what you're doing. And I think, uh, you know, good communication, you know, and kind of sharing life experiences, stories, or whatever, That aren't in writing, you know. It's always kind of fun, Uh, but I really respect what you're doing. Like a lot of podcasts, I mean, there are plenty out there, but sometimes they sometimes tend to just focus on celebrities. And what I mean, at least it's not bad, you know. But then again, it's it's uh, they live a more privileged life, you know, than than we do on an average basis, you know. But uh, but like I say, people are people, and if you uh, engage in the right way and be respectful, uh, you'll have a good friend
0: yeah well thank you so much dick and we will definitely do it again here soon and uh hope everyone enjoyed it uh again if you could listen like great review and share the podcast we would appreciate it uh until next time thank
1: okay you. thank you jeremy
0: and uh, we will
1: stay in touch all right